From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Black Politics and History, from the 1870s to the 1930s to today. Eric Foner will talk about how our understanding of Reconstruction has changed and about the activists who changed the field back in the 1930s. But first, the fate of women in Afghanistan and the responsibilities of America towards them is the most painful and disturbing part of our departure from Afghanistan after almost 20 years there. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Katha, of course, is an award-winning poet, essayist, and columnist for the nation. She's been writing about Afghan women and urging us to support Afghan women's organizations for more than a decade. We reached her today in Connecticut. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. You've been writing about Afghan women's organizations for more than a decade. Do you consider yourself an expert on Afghanistan and on what's going to happen there next? No. In fact, I am the only journalist, the only opinion writer who is not an expert on Afghanistan. (laughs) Thank you for that. Your latest column is a report on what some prominent leaders of Afghan women's organizations told you about the American withdrawal and their current situation. Let's start with Fahima Gahiz, head of the Afghan Women's Fund. You've been writing about her and her organization for the nation. I looked this up since at least 2008, 13 years ago. First of all, tell us about her and about the fund she heads. Well, Fahima is a, uh, an Afghan expatriate who lives in the United States, and her fund uh, it's a small NGO that works mostly in rural Afghanistan. Um, she builds, they build girls' schools, they deliver supplies for schools and other material aid. They teach, they run literacy classes, skills to earn a living. And she was starting these women's councils in, in villages. Um, and I've been a supporter for many years and I count her as a friend. In the old days, we used to have uh, rug sales, Afghan rug sales in my apartment. Um, that was great. And I, my whole apartment is covered in these beautiful rugs. Now. So we haven't done that for a while, though. And what did she tell you when you interviewed her last week? Well, naturally, she's incredibly um, distressed and upset by what's going on. She is trying to get um, people out. And that's not easy. As, as you know, there's been a lot of reporting about that. And, you know, I want to say uh, Fahima was always against the war, always, always, um, and was always reminding me, you know, it's not just the Taliban. There are there are many uh, competing warlords, jihadis, um, all kinds of um, corrupt politicians. And it's really a, a terrible mess. And um She always felt the United States made a tremendously terrible move in uh, in kind of not getting rid of the warlords. The warlords were in the government. Um, She told me, you know, half the members of parliament are warlords and the other half are kind of allied with them, she told me. I mean, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it gives you a sense of how complicated our intervention has been um, when you throw billions of dollars at a very, very undeveloped, poor country, a lot of it is going to go missing. 
Well, I'm sure she knows that the official Taliban spokesman had this press conference where he said the Taliban would respect the rights of women, quote, within the limits of Islam, close quote. And he did not say the Taliban would return to their policies of 20 years ago when women were banned from work, girls were not allowed to go to school, women were banned from leaving the house without a male guardian, banned from appearing in public without a burqa. And when women were executed for moral offenses at those horrifying mass spectacles in stadiums and sports arenas, uh, did she say anything about the Taliban's recent statement that they will respect the rights of women within the limits of Islam? Well, she's skeptical, to put it mildly. I'll just quote what she told me, uh, what she wrote in an email to supporters, rather. Throughout the country, women and children are being displaced, losing their homes, experiencing rape, torture and murder and fleeing violence. Uh, Last July, one of her workers was kidnapped by the Taliban and tortured. And more recently, the daughter of one of her aid workers was killed. So that doesn't sound very peaceful or conciliatory, does it? I I think that The Taliban is saying what it needs to say in public to the West, I mean, to or to, you know, to the world, uh, the international, quote, community, unquote. But what happens is another story. And especially what happens in, you know, in some rural place where there aren't any journalists, um, where where they've been they've been running a swath of the country for quite some time. And it has not been a happy story, and not just for women, but for um, for men who oppose their rule as well. So the Afghan Women's Fund says their current immediate project is to help the women and children who are living on the streets fleeing violence and murder, who have immediate needs for food, shelter, clothing, blankets, tents, toiletries, and medical care. You can find out more about the Afghan Women's Fund at afghanwomensfund.org, no spaces, one word, afghanwomensfund.org. You spoke with a second person named Yafat Suskind, the head of the international women's rights organization Madre. She's actually written for the nation. You first wrote about Madre in 2009, 12 years ago. Uh, Tell us about Madre and and about Yafat. Well, Madre is a a very big... Uh, NGO that has uh, works with act, local activists in many, many countries. Um, it's a feminist organization, and it's been working in Afghanistan. She said, I, I love this phrase, the Taliban has moved like water into every place vacated by U.S. and NATO forces. So they're, you know, they were really ready. Um, and I wanted to talk to her because she was quoted in a recent Nation article in which she called on the the administration to, quote, reinvest funding, unquote, for the war into, quote, supporting Afghan civil society and women's human rights. And I was curious, you know, given that the Taliban now runs the country, how is that supposed to happen? That article, by the way, was was very optimistic. It was a lot of women uh, involved in international work, um, all saying um, this is a great opportunity for wonderful things to happen. This was before the Taliban took over, but I think they thought um, it was going to be a happier story than it turned out to be. But right now, I, she didn't really want to talk about that. Um, and right now, her focus, like Fahima's and the other people I spoke to, the focus is on the immediate crisis, yeah. um, getting getting vulnerable activists out of the country, 
the Madre website right now says the U.S. must remain accountable for the harms they've committed in Afghanistan for two decades. Madre stands with the women on the ground who are taking action, defending their rights, and supporting their communities. Find out more about Madre at madre.org. And you also talked with Sunita Vizwanath, who's head of the NGO Women for Afghan Women, WAW. Tell us about her and her organization. Well, their organization runs uh, domestic violence shelters and shelters for other women who are, you know, at tremendous risk. And they it's it's big. They have a whole bunch of shelters throughout the country. And she, she too, is preoccupied with getting 500 of her staffers out of the country. I asked her if she believed the, the Taliban's promises, and she gave a more equivocal answer. She said, I don't know. And she noted that a Taliban spokesman was recently interviewed by a woman on Afghan TV, and she said that's unheard of. So the, the Afghan, Taliban is clearly making certain efforts to look more modern, more open to to women in, within limits um, than it did the last time around. But she did say, you know, we've always worked within an Islamic context and have been respectful of the country, the culture. It's a majority Muslim organization, uh, Women for Afghan Women. And if the Taliban says that girls can go to school, but not with boys, we can work with that. The website of Women for Afghan Women says... We're a majority Afghan and Muslim organization, but today we are all Afghans. Over the past few weeks, we have been working relentlessly 24-7 to keep our clients, staff, and families alive and safe. We are evacuating our centers, pausing our operations, and continually assessing risks, working day and night to provide safe shelter, resources, and aid to keep thousands of women, children, families, and our staff who, the staff who are under our care, we ask not only for your prayers in these desperate times, but for your immediate support to get us through this crisis. Women for Afghan Women is online at where you would expect them to be, womenforafghanwomen.org, no spaces. There's one other person you did not talk to who I know something about, the founder and head of the only all-girls boarding school in Afghanistan. It's called SOLA, S-O-L-A, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. Remarkable woman named Shabana Basidra Sikh. She was recently featured in an interview on the New Yorker podcast, interviewed by Sue Halperin, where she quoted one of her students saying, the Taliban will kill more of us. The Taliban will kill a lot more of us but they will never, ever rule over us. Quote, this is a student at a girls' boarding school in Afghanistan. Shabana recently tweeted that she had burned all the records of the Sola students to protect them and their families. And she says, quote, my students, colleagues, and I are safe with enormous gratitude to our ever-vibrant global village, specifically Today, Wednesday, we're recording this on Wednesday, she announced that 200 students and teachers got out of Afghanistan via Qatar and are spending what she calls a semester abroad in Rwanda. That, I guess, is the global village she's talking about. A remarkable story. We'd love to hear more about it. And you can learn more about Shabana and Sola at solaafghanistan.org. That has a dash, sola-afghanistan. 
So uh, your closing thoughts about what else we would we need to know uh, before we can declare ourselves experts? Well, uh, one thing I'd like to mention is that there is kind of a meme going around that uh, feminists supported the war, white feminists. This is actually not true. Um, what is true is that some, the Democratic women politicians in the federal government voted for the war. And there were certainly high profile women who supported the war and gave a defense of women's rights as the reason. But most feminists are not those people, those high profile A-list people. And they opposed the war. I mean, Code Pink, I, I, I ask you, you know, uh, Code Pink, you can't possibly be more anti-war than them. Um, and and I, I, don't, I just want to say, you know, my friends, I don't know any feminists who supported the war. Um, and I think it's just really easy, like the way it's really easy to blame Biden for the mistakes of, you know, 20 years. It's really easy to blame feminists quote unquote, for this, because one always wants to blame women, but really, uh, (laughs) but really, uh, but really this, this is not on them. So just to sum up, we've talked here about the Afghan women's fund, more information at afghanwomensfund.org, all one word, no spaces, no hyphens about Madre, more information about them at madre.org about women for Afghan women. That's womenforafghanwomen.org, all one word, no spaces, no hyphens. And I mentioned the only all-girl boarding school in Afghanistan, which is now out of the country, SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. They're at sola-afghanistan.org. Katha Pollitt, her new column at The Nation is Afghan Women and Girls Are Caught in the Crossfire. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. We needed you today. Thanks so much for having me. Understanding Black America from Reconstruction to the Great Depression to the present. For that, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught American history at Columbia for several decades. His work on the history of Reconstruction has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, we care about Reconstruction, the decade following the Civil War, first of all, because the constitutional amendments passed in those years are at the center of our politics today, especially the guarantee of equal protection of the laws in the 14th Amendment, along with birthright citizenship. You recently wrote a book about the significance of the Reconstruction Amendments. We talked about it here. It's called The Second Founding. Now you've written the foreword to a new edition of an old book on Reconstruction, The author is James S. Allen. It's called Reconstruction, the Battle for Democracy, and it was published in 1937 by international publishers 50 years before your own book on Reconstruction. Who was the author, James S. Allen? Yes, James Allen uh, was a a theorist, or whatever you want to call it, of the Communist Party for many years. Uh, He edited uh, some Communist Party uh, newspapers, publications. He worked with international publishers, which was sort of connected as a publishing house with the party. 
He wrote a great deal, and the reason I'm interested in him here is about the black situation in the United States. Uh, many pamphlets and other uh, teaching in communist schools about it. Um, but what I wanted to draw attention to here was this book, Reconstruction, the Battle for Democracy, uh, which is very hardly known today. If you, you people know about Du Bois's great work, Black Reconstruction in America, published just a year or two before Allen. But Allen's book is also very good and very interesting and deserves to be known again. So uh, as you said, international publishers reissued it just uh, recently. And I wrote a brief introduction explaining who Allen was and why this book really still deserves to be read, even though it is uh, quite a few decades old. And let's emphasize here that Alan was a white man who went to the South. Very courageous thing to do in the early 30s. Tell, tell that story. Yeah, it wasn't very easy to do that. In, in 1930, he, was, he and his wife, Isabel, was sent by the party into the South. Uh, he ended up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, to set up a weekly newspaper in order to radicalize people in the South and report on the sharecroppers movement and other things going on uh, in the South. The Communist Party was making a big effort to try to mobilize uh, downtrodden workers in the South. And of course, the black situation was very important to recruiting drives by the Communist Party at that time. I think it's fair to say that the Communist Party was the only largely white organization, which really made the condition of blacks a fundamental part of its political uh, program. And Allen was there then to both be a reporter and to mobilize people and to report particularly on what was going on about among sharecroppers and workers in the South. And they published a they published uh, a, a newspaper called the Southern Worker, a weekly. And how much did it co- did the, it cost to buy a copy of the Southern Worker? Two cents. Uh, most uh, poor, poor workers in the South were not spending a lot of money on newspapers. <laughs> and, and and by the way, it was two cents. But then if they had any left over, they were supposed to just give them away for free to people. But the Southern Worker was a very remarkable uh, uh, newspaper. And yes, uh, setting this a Communist Party newspaper up in the South during the Great Depression was not an easy thing to do. In fact, he couldn't find anyone to publish it for a while, a printer. Finally, he landed on a a, a official of the Ku Klux Klan in North Georgia, who uh, ran a print shop and was running out of money and agreed to print the weekly edition uh, because he needed Allen's patronage. Um, (laughs) And this kind of confused the FBI. They couldn't, the FBI could never quite figure out where this newspaper was being published. It was, they kind of knew it had something to do with this thing in Georgia, but a a Klansman publishing this didn't seem logical. Uh, Allen put Birmingham, Alabama on the dateline of the paper to throw them off also. So what's interesting to me, though, is how Allen, while he was there, began doing research on Reconstruction and writing about Reconstruction and trying to really write about the black role in Reconstruction. Before we get to the black role in Reconstruction, there's one more thing about the Allen's work reporting from the South that's significant, the Scottsboro Boys. Yeah, well, uh, Allen uh, was connected also with the International Labor Defense, which was uh, a sort of communist legal arm. And um, the Scottsboro Boys, these several uh, black teenagers, basically, who were accused of rape by two white women. We now know this was totally fabricated, but they were sentenced to death. And they, long uh, 
you know, legal cases came out of that over the whole 1930s into the 1940s. Um, and, um, you know, the, the Southern worker publicized this. Alan's wife went down there to sit in the courtroom in Alabama and report what was going on. And Glenda Gilmore, the historian retired recently from Yale, writes in one of her books that without Alan's publicizing what was happening to these young black men, they probably would have been executed. But with the public knowledge, uh, not only in the United States, it became a worldwide uh, issue. Uh, it, it, they really helped to save the uh, Scottsboro boys' lives. And I want to talk a little bit more about the Communist Party in the 30s and its view of black people in the South. The official party line was self-determination for the black belt. This idea came from the Communist International uh, it was the worldwide party line following Stalin's nationalities policies in the Soviet Union. The idea did not come out of the grassroots organizing in the South. And in many ways, it was not really suited to black Americans. In other ways, it, it was. People today kind of ridicule the idea of black uh, self-determination in the black belt. The black belt being the area of majority black population ranging, the old plantation belt ranging from Virginia down through the deep south out to Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, etc. And uh, yes, yeah, Stalin had put into effect this policy in the Soviet Union where each kind of ethnic group would have its own state, its own sub-state within the Soviet Union. Today, they're all independent uh, nations. So the Uzbeks would have Uzbekistan and the, uh, I don't know, the Kazakhs would have Kazakhstan, etc. Why not do that in the U.S.? You have these areas of majority black population Self-determination is the point. Now, I think most black people didn't, didn't really cotton to this idea, to use a Southern phrase. In other words, they had, it didn't seem plausible some way. But on the other hand, it did tap into this black nationalism, which was very prominent. Remember, the Garvey movement 10 years earlier had really developed a nationalistic approach, which uh, appealed to a large numbers of blacks. So Allen promoted the idea of self-determination of the black belt, but they also promoted the idea of equality in all ways for blacks, political, social, economic, in the rest of the country also. So uh, he was pursuing the party line, which sometimes didn't really make sense. But again, Reconstruction then comes in some ways to appear as an example of black self-determination. It had happened once before, could happen again. Yes, we now... No, it had happened once before. Uh, at the time that Alan wrote his book, though, the idea that it happened once before was held up as one of the great disasters in American history. What was taught at the American colleges and universities at the time that Alan went to work on it was called the Dunning School. Let's tell us about the Dunning School. My predecessor at Columbia, Dunning, William A. Dunning, who taught the Civil War and Reconstruction there long, long ago, Yes, the Dunning School portrayed Reconstruction as the lowest point in the whole history of American politics. It was a period of corruption, misgovernment, vindictive radicals were trying to punish the white South. But the main cause of it being so terrible was that black men had gotten the right to vote. And according to this racist interpretation, black people are just incapable of intelligently taking part in political democracy. And therefore, this orgy of corruption followed, and eventually Reconstruction was overthrown by the Klan and other groups that were glorified by the uh, Dunning School. Um, Allen very quickly came to realize that this view of Reconstruction was actually a big impediment 
to racial progress in the 1930s when he's writing because it justified the Jim Crow system. It legitimated taking the right to vote away from blacks. Anytime anyone said, well, maybe we should, you know, expand the rights of black Southerners, they were, oh, no, no, then you'll have another horrors of reconstruction. So um, you had to fight the battle over history in order to fight the battle over white supremacy in the present. And that was one of Allen's great insights. Now, you did mention that Allen was not the first to challenge the Dunning School. There was E.B. Du Bois, who wrote the book Black Reconstruction in America, two years before Dunning's book came out. What was Du Bois's argument? Well, that might take a little while to explain because it was over 700 pages of the book. But <laughs> yes, it was. Du Bois's argument is the title of the book, Black Reconstruction, that this is a critical period for black America that recon and then also for American democracy, that black people were the cutting edge of change in Reconstruction, and that it was a period of tremendous accomplishment and hope, not the disaster that the Dunning School uh, put forward. And two years before Allen, Du Bois had published Black Reconstruction in America, which put that view of Reconstruction out there and had some, you know, some impact, although not necessarily, not really in the universities. It sold relatively well, but it didn't change the way the vast majority of historians portrayed Reconstruction. Black Reconstruction was not seen as a great work of history until much, much later. Yes, until your book and the other historians of our uh, generation in the in the '60s. So, given that a very talented and accomplished and indeed famous black historian had written about Black Reconstruction two years before. Why did James S. Allen write his book at all? Well, you know, Allen was writing the book while Du Bois was working on his. There's a bit of a mythology out there that the party ordered Allen to write a book on Reconstruction because they felt that Du Bois's interpretation didn't quite measure up as a Marxist view. Du Bois had used terminology like the proletarian revolution in the South, or that the Southern Reconstruction governments were dictatorships of black labor. And the party felt, and you can see this in articles in the Daily Worker, uh, that, uh, no, that's not correct. Were you, it wasn't a proletarian revolution. First of all, they hadn't read Karl Marx yet, you know, <laughs> and there was really no proletariat in a modern sense, certainly no industrial proletariat to speak of in the South. It was a bourgeois revolution. It was a bourgeois revolution. And that's what Alan argues. And in a way, you know, without getting into uh, the arcane discussion of this, um, both Du Bois and Alan emphasize the class relations here, as well as the question of, of black rights. Um, to Du Bois, it was an effort to make a proletarian state uh, in the South. To Alan, it was a a bourgeois revolution where black people were at the head, but the northern bourgeoisie was with them for a time, but then drew back. Why? Because uh, the blacks were demanding land and the, uh, and the northern uh, bourgeoisie felt that was a threat to private property. So calling it a bourgeois revolution helps to explain why it failed. Um, but really, I think this kind of definitional uh, argument is uh, not of great concern to us one way or the other. Actually, these two books overlap enormously, Black Reconstruction and, Re and Reconstruction, the Battle for Democracy. Both of them emphasize the role of Blacks. Both of them attack the historical profession for its racism. 
Uh, both of them see Reconstruction in a very positive light, and both of them use the word democracy in the title or subtitle, that this is a key moment in the history of American democracy, not just in African-American history. Uh, Alan's book is 250 pages, <laughs> Du Bois is 700 some odd pages, Du Bois is a poetic writer, Alan is more of a publicist or a journalist, I should say. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not surprising that Du Bois's book, it's kind of overshadowed Alan's. But I think Alan did a lot of research and there's a lot of material from the voices of black people from conventions, from newspapers, from letters, which gives you a real sense of reconstruction uh, in a way that, um, you know, you get it in a more succinct fashion, so to speak, than if you're reading Black Reconstruction in America. Well, W.E.B. Du Bois joined the Communist Party in 1961 when he was, I think, 93 years old. Uh, what happened to James S. Allen after, after he published his book? Well, he remained a significant figure in the American Communist Party all the way up to the end of his, to the end of his life in the late 1980s. He, um, he uh, as I said before, worked for international publishers. He wrote, continued to write a lot about the black situation and many other uh, political issues. He was sent by the Communist International to the Philippines around 1940 in order to try to bolster up cooperation between communists and socialists as war with Japan was impending on the horizon. So he, um, you know, Alan kept his political views and he, and, he, uh, and he kept writing and he was a significant figure on the left for uh, many, many years. Although today he's probably not nearly as well known as, as he once was. So today we honor Reconstruction as a period of black political power. We also honor it because of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection of the laws. Where do we stand on equal protection today? Well, the Constitution, as they say, is what the Supreme Court says it is. And our Supreme Court is not, let us say, as fully committed to the idea of uh, equal protection of the law for all as uh, it might well be. Uh, we, you know, they're, certainly they're not interested in protecting voting rights, which is more a 15th Amendment question, but it's critical today, of course. Uh, in other words, uh, this is a struggle that is still going on. That's one of the reasons that Reconstruction is valuable to think about. The, as you mentioned before, citizenship, voting rights, equal protection. These are Reconstruction issues which are still on our agenda right now. Um, you know, obviously, Allen is not the most up-to-date word on these things. It's uh, quite a few years ago, but it's still insightful, that book. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's good that it's being reissued and out there as, uh, you know, as something available to people who want to learn more about this uh, history. The struggle is still going on. Eric Foner wrote a new introduction to James Allen's 1937 book, Reconstruction, the Battle for Democracy. It's out now from international publishers. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. 
Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.